Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Colin Downey. Colin is the Sales and Partnerships Director for Wild Hearts Group, an organization that enables large enterprises to have a positive social impact at home and abroad through how they spend. Since they became fully operational in 2010, the Wild Hearts Group has transformed 2 million lives. Leveraging the power of money, companies were going to spend anyway. So, hi, Colin. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hi, Kelly. Great to be a part of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. And even just based on the high-level intro that I've already shared, I think we're going to hear some very aspirational, very exciting things that are going on that Wild Hearts Group is involved in. But I want to learn a little bit more about you first. Uh, What has your professional journey looked like to this point? Uh, When I finished university, which uh, I've got a degree in marketing and business law, I'll be quite honest, I spent a good couple of years as a diving instructor, uh, traveling around some of the tropical seas of of the world. So I was very privileged to live in a lot of um, some wonderful places in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia for for many years. But I came back and was involved. I've always been involved in sales and business development was where I sort of cut my teeth and, and I don't think there's many better groundings for a further career in entrepreneurship than being able to you know ultimately hustle uh use your resources wisely try and create business uh ultimately from uh, from scratch so the background has always been um sales i had a small sabbatical as a helicopter pilot for a while an itch that I, i couldn't scratch uh for um for a good couple of years and again that's led me to, to living in different countries working and uh, flying but my goal and sort of main driver after doing a lot of that has always been using business as a force for good so i've been around the wild hearts group since its inception it wasn't my idea uh, but i was you know the original employee alongside uh the ceo of the group to this day and, and between us we've helped to build multiple companies really some of those operating globally now and as you mentioned before if you told me when we started the business sort of 15 years ago that we would have helped two million people by this point we wouldn't have believed you um certainly always been driven to be successful but as we've started the journey more doors have opened you take on more responsibility your vision gets bigger and you ultimately we want to get to 5 million help 10 million people you know as fast as we can there's always going to be people people that need our help well that's amazing clear you clearly you bring an adventurous spirit to this space if you're willing to go deep sea diving and then up in helicopters two things I would absolutely never be brave enough to consider, then clearly you have the right frame of mind to take on some of the audacious uh, challenges you've accepted as a team. Now, I talked a little bit about what Wild Hearts Group is and and what they do, but I'd love to hear in your own words um, how the group works and maybe some of the different operational areas you focus in. I'm sure. So when we started the business, 
business. Uh, when I sort of went for my sort of initial conversation with Mick, we both had a, a passion, if you like, that business could stand for something greater. You know, there's an idea that, you know, you could make money. Anybody can make money, but, you know, how much does any individual specifically need? What if we could make money and then ultimately give it away or use that money wisely in an entrepreneurial sense to be able to create other opportunities for people less fortunate than ourselves? So Wild Heart's office was started. It's it, in many ways, it sells pretty mundane things. It's a business supplies company. So we source and sell stationary printing, um, sort of IT hardware, PPE. Our number one product, would you believe these days, is coffee, not paper off the top spot for the first oh, time in 50 years. And, uh, you know, we ship pallets of these goods into many major corporate businesses, many global brands, but all of the profit is reinvested in our social programs. So we also have a registered foundation as part of the group. It works both in the UK and globally over 40 countries uh, globally, investing the money that we make in our businesses and invests it in long-term finance solutions to help other people with opportunities that they may not otherwise have. Um, the stationery company has evolved to sell those different service lines, um, as I mentioned, but we also have a talent program where we deliver an entrepreneurial education program in schools. We teach corporates entrepreneurial training. Uh, we have recently become an an accredited apprenticeship provider where we're looking to um, teach young people, particularly young people from low-income backgrounds, how to be more entrepreneurial with their behaviours, support them with employability opportunities in our company. So there's a range of different things. It can sometimes sound a little bit difficult to explain it all in ultimate detail, but all of companies as a group are started and their aim is always to deliver social outcomes that are inherent as part of the business. So we're very keen on making as much money as possible, certainly not profiteering, but maximizing profit. Profit's not a, a dirty word in that sense, but the more profit we can make, the more people we can help. And there's several of us in the group who are linked as trustees as part of our foundation and our social impact work. And everybody employed in the team you know, there's over 300 of us now in the group across uh, multiple countries, particularly in some of our microfinance banks in sub-Saharan Africa, where every facet of their work, uh, the day-to-day -day can be a little bit mundane. It's fair to say that. Lots of Excel spreadsheets, phone calls, business development, but the outcomes of it mm. are all the clients we help through our microfinance programs, our schools programs. We run a reusable sanitary pad factory and operate that factory in South Africa, for example. So it's all focused on delivering social outcomes and will constantly be scanning for new ideas, new opportunities that fit with our general strategies. And to sort of sum those two things up, it's ultimately social mobility, giving people sort of from poorer backgrounds the opportunity to climb social ladders. There's multiple ways to do that. Or globally, we're very focused on making women more equal. There's multiple strategies that we have as part of that. But if you can make women more equal in the developing world, you can very quickly transform the economies and communities within which they live and work. Absolutely. Now, one of the terms you've used a few times that I just want to sort of pause and define in case people are new to it is the idea of microfinancing. How do you explain to somebody what microfinancing is? Microfinance isn't our idea originally. It was conceived in the, the late 80s uh, by a man called Professor Mohammed Yunus. He went on to win a Nobel 
Peace Prize in the 80s and uh, sort of was lauded as the pioneer of sort of realizing that the poor, for want of a better collective name for it, generally speaking, have no access to safe forms of capital. They can be as entrepreneurial as the next person, they can be as driven as the next person, but often have structural barriers to make themselves uh, successful. So microfinance in its simple defining um, wording is lending money to people, particularly some of the poorest, particularly the rural poorest who have no access to mainstream jobs or any kind of liquid capital, lending them money in order for them to start or invest in an existing business so that they can create a stable and steady and sustainable form of income. And then it's ultimately banking, but it's banking for the poor. It almost goes back to the, the, the simplest form of banking when banking was um, created in the, the 1600s. Come up with a business plan, go and ask the bank manager for a loan for whatever you need and invest that in either the resources you need, the education or training you need to start or develop an existing business. And you can quite simply pay off the loan at a very low interest rate and then you have an expanded business and ultimately an expanded income stream. Now, certainly entrepreneurship is already hard and any entrepreneur in any country, in any social stratus will tell you that accessing capital can be one of the biggest challenges. But in some economies, especially developing economies, and I think you also mentioned women, women in particular, it can be even that much harder to access even these smaller pools of funding to get their business up and off the ground. What, what is it that makes it so much more challenging in these economies and for women in particular to get access to funding? So um, really good question. And so forgive me for generalizing if any of your listeners sort of, um, you know, can sort of allow me to generalize a little bit, you know, in the developing world, broadly many of the poorer economies of the world, that the rural poor are ultimately rural. You know, they don't, their economies don't tend to create jobs the way that the Western world can create jobs. Um, you know, the way that we have major global finance systems and liquidity of capital, it just doesn't work that way in the developing world and particularly in rural areas. And for, again, generalizing, but for many women, they are excluded from normal work. And in a lot of rural economies, that labor can be quite physical. So traditionally, men have done it. Traditionally, if men are making money in subsistence farming or, or general labor, they tend to keep the money for themselves because a lot of the structures in those societies mean that you know men can have more than one girlfriend or wife uh, can ultimately pick and choose where they spend their money and women's role is you know very different to the modern western view of women and, and rest assured women aren't equal all of the time in the, the western world i get that but it is um quite oppressive for women in a lot of developing world economies so they have no access to cash, whether it's from their husbands or from their banks, and ultimately often no job opportunities. So they are very excluded, and they ultimately find themselves looking after children. Many of them have children through no choice of their own, and that 
you know, is a phrase where I have met many women through our microfinance um, lending programs in many of the countries I've been privileged to go to, where I have had that direct, you know, sentence relayed to me on more occasions than you might ever want to think. So just the access to capital regardless of how you know our average if you take malawi for example our average loan is around about 50 pounds you know 75 dollars 80 80 dollars in, in the us it's really not a lot of money but they would only be able to borrow that money from loan sharks and um, so they might have a really good idea they might be already running a, a hand to sort of mouth subsistence business at the local market but their access to capital must come from the loan shark and the minute they take out that loan the majority of the profit that they make is being returned to the loan shark and they tend never to get out that cycle of of lending and financing because the interest is so high or the rules change and there's no contracts and and yeah. ultimately that they're at the behest of the person that lent them that money microfinance is very different though it's structured um women borrow money in trust groups so they're borrowing collectively with their friends and their relatives almost all women's one woman will get her loan, the second woman won't get her loan until the first one started paying theirs back. So there's a real helpful and sort of motivational structure there to make sure you don't let down your peers or your family in your village. And crucially, when the interest rate is very low, women can often pay the average loan cycle repayments only three to four months. So you can structure how they'll pay off their debt with the loan shark very quickly. You can then help them build their business with a business plan and teaching them simple things like profit and loss and how you save money for the lean times. The structures around microfinance, around saving money and savings plans, and even armored vehicles will drive into villages so that they can have their own bank account. They do the majority of the banking these days with mobile phones, so they don't need to visit physical banks. And that process of providing them safe forms of lending can very quickly get them out of debt, very quickly build established businesses, and very quickly allow them to be creating, you know, what to them is significant amounts of income that women will almost exclusively invest the profits in their children. So when the women are independent of their male um, partners or husbands, again, they may have more than one wife where money is diluted. Women will spend the money on their children, make sure they're better fed, get better clothes, instantly get the medicine that they need if it's required. And the fourth thing that they do is send their children to school. So it has a multifaceted, quite scalable, um, you know, impact that goes far beyond the woman's business. And the minute she's paid back her loan, you know, there's, there's no um, adherence to working with us. In the future, she has her own business and she can continue to be successful with or without us. Well, and that's an excellent transition then, I think, to the other kind of impact you're having. So we've talked about microfinance, but Wild Hearts Group is also investing in education at the entrepreneurial level to try to break the multi-generational cycle of either unemployment or underemployment in these same poor rural communities. I'm, I'm interested about how that works. Um, yeah, institutional sort of unemployment and lack of aspiration and, and networks is not something that's exclusive to, to Scotland or to the UK. It, it, it tends to be a Western world sort of social issue, particularly in societies that are less equal, you know, sort of where the rich are richer and the, the, the poor are poorer. And if young people in communities in any country don't have the right aspiration, they don't have the right knowledge, they don't 
have after generations the rights at networks to be able to work their way out of, of poverty. Teaching and instilling entrepreneurial behaviours in their mindsets is one of the ways you can help people to challenge the thinking, the sort of institutional malaise at times. And we've seen that many times in our programme. Rest assured, we don't have all the answers and our programme isn't necessarily uh, a panacea, but it is particularly successful at changing the mindsets of young people in rural communities to, you know, to, to be using entrepreneurial thoughts and behaviours to change the circumstances with which they find themselves. And we are really keen not only taking kids through our entrepreneurial education programme, which is ratified by the educational systems that all the children in all the countries that are um, part of our programme are in, but using our large-scale corporate customer base to try and join the two things together. So, so finding entrepreneurial talent, young people who want to climb that social mobility ladder in sort of not just rural, you know, inner city, um, you know, inner city schools have big problems with inequality and, and institutional um, issues with lack of inspiration and knowledge. And we're keen to try and join up the dots from kids from the low-income communities to try and find job opportunities or, you know, help them into apprenticeships or into university or ultimately destination into some of our corporate customers, um, employment programs and, and viable routes to work. So last year, over uh, 60,000 young people were involved in our schools program. Um, wow. you know, our next target is to reach 100,000 uh, young people in 2024 with all of the ways in which we do that. So and we've heard about say, two all, all of that is funded. Sure. Sorry, Kelly, just a minute. You know, all yeah. of the schools program, all of our microfinance work globally is funded because of our customers purchasing really mundane business supplies like the stationery or their IT headsets and their screens and their laptops and their furniture. And every year that profit is then reinvested in these programs. So it's important because we are a social enterprise, we're a social business. We can't do any of this great work unless we're inspiring people to buy from us that we're selling product at the right price, at the right quality. So it's very much a procurement conversation, lends itself very well to the, you know, the title of, of being a sourcing hero, but our customers are extremely dear to us and we can't do anything without them. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about them for a minute. You've mentioned stationery, you've mentioned sort of some peripheral IT accessories. How do you figure out which categories of product will be a part of that portfolio that allows you to generate the revenue to therefore go out and do do good works in the world? Um, 15 years ago, when we first started, uh, you know, Mick, who is the founder and CEO of the Wild Hearts Group, Mick Jackson, I remember talking to him in the days, and, you know, every business buys office supplies, as we called it in those days, you know, general stationery from suspension files to, to staplers to paper to notebooks. Uh, and the more we spoke to our contacts and businesses, sometimes the expenditure on that service line really quite high, you know, several hundred thousand pounds. And and, and to, to date, we have customers who spend seven figures with us on these things. And there's a privilege in having a social business. When you're talking to a procurement person, um, you might have won some of their stationary business, but there's a privilege where they say, well, look, we spend X amount of money on printing could you do that for me we spend x amount of money on mobile phones we spend x amount of money on fleet for example so we don't sell fleet and we don't sell mobile phones but there's a there's a wonderful um 
a sort of mutual, mutually beneficial relationship with a procurement person where they're looking at their expenditure, which sometimes is billions of pounds, and sort of going, where could I spend this money? Where could I spend, what else could I buy from you? So we've always had an insight into the things that our customers have wanted us to spend money on. You know, for example, uh, although we haven't ever done it, but our insurance customers, their number one expenditure is is either on lawyers for claims mm. or it's on, <laughs> if it's a car insurer, it's, it's mechanics and garages, yeah. you know, fixing crashed cars. Now, neither of those things are important or appropriate for us, broadly speaking. But, you know, again, we start to use that type of uh, knowledge to guide where we should go next. There's always a natural evolution, though, from where we started with stationery into things like IT hardware, because as physical stationery becomes less relevant, IT hardware becomes more relevant. Yeah. So the, the catalogs we have these days for you know laptops and screens and then all the chairs and furniture that come with it is a natural evolution. Printing became a further evolution of all of that. And again, so it's all several sides of the same uh, conversation, but you know, we can be guided by our customers. It's important we don't jump about too much. As I mentioned, we suddenly start doing mobile phones or fleet, yeah. but we've got a wonderful insight into where we think it's right for us to evolve. And of course, when you've got a customer where their expenditure is delivering impact, they're keen to expand their relationship with us. They want us to be more successful. They know that by spending more, it's going to drive more impact. So the conversation is always looking to try and maximize that for both the customer, because their shareholders and stakeholders would like to drive more impact from their procurement spend. And of course, from us to help guide us where it might be a sensible evolution for the business to go. And to that point about impact, certainly you want to have it. We've talked about the 2 million lives affected. I know you have your goal for, what was it, 100,000 kids going through the entrepreneurial education program this year. But beyond having the numbers, a huge thing in business is the governance around making sure that the people sharing and reading reports have confidence in those impact numbers. What have you learned in your experience of trying to gather data, provide sourcing documentation um, that might actually be applicable not just to companies partnering with the Wild Hearts Group, but truthfully to any procurement professional listening in that has responsibility for part of their company's ESG program? Uh, it's important. Um, well, so I think what I'll start chatting about here is, is as relevant for a business that's doing the selling as well as the the customer that is doing the the, the purchasing accreditations as many accreditations that are well known um is probably the best place to start um for example uh, you know social enterprises generally by their nature are legally structured to use their profit for their social programs not every Every country has a legal framework for the definition of a social enterprise, but lots do. Um, transparent accounts is a simple thing so that anybody looking under the cover of your accounts can see your profitability, see what you've done with that profit, where it's been reinvested. Um, we are relatively lucky in the Wild Touch Group is we have uh, a registered foundation as part of the group. So that is also governed by the Office of the Charity Regulator, so that the foundation's results online it's quite easy to see the money moving between where we where we profited and, and where it leaves and it, it becomes the charity's money of course then the charity is regulated by multiple trustees 
Um, there are other accreditations that we've got, which we never had in the early days. We, we had to, you know, to be honest, if I go right back to the early days, there was many customers who were just sourcing on price and competitiveness and were prepared to give us a go. So I'm really grateful to them because we didn't have ISO accreditations in place. We didn't have our Ecovadis ratings. We weren't carbon neutral. We weren't necessarily, you know, an accredited member of social enterprise member bodies. I've sat on the board of Social Enterprise UK for a number of years, and that lends a little bit of credibility and transparency as well. So we've kind of evolved to have a significant number of accreditations now, and it wasn't necessarily easy, and you can't pick them all off the shelf. And often in good faith and, so to say, a bit of entrepreneurialism and dynamism and confidence and you know just getting out there in the world, you can convince people that we are the right people to bond. And then as you build and get more resource and can invest in that resource in your internal team, you've got more time and people to be able to create accreditations that allow the future customers to be won more easily because yeah. you can tick a lot of you can tick a lot of boxes. So it's being as transparent as you can. And, and when younger social enterprises or you know procurement um, personnel, you know, are, are developing these conversations, you just have to be as open as you can be get as many accreditations you can be transparent about it both publicly and privately um but passion goes an awful long way as well to looking for opportunities and i think people are inherently good the world over are prepared to give most people a chance if they come across as credible and dependable and, and do what they say they're going to do so you don't always need accreditations but they, they tend to help when you're not necessarily having a conversation with somebody directly. So the computer's not saying no when you don't know that it's saying yeah. no. Now, Colin, before we wrap up our time together, I want to ask you a pairing of questions. This is part of our tradition here at The Sourcing Hero. Every guest goes through it their very first time. So I'm going to ask you two questions. You can choose either one you want, and there are no wrong answers. So your choices are, what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or how would you describe what heroism looks like in a business context? I think I've probably, I'd say, our, if I could touch on it both very quickly, the sourcing heroes are our customers. They have looked and they're trying to align themselves and businesses like ours to maximize impact from their procurement spend. So that there are any of our customers are, are sourcing heroes. But heroin in a business context are our female microfinance clients. Mm -hmm. I have too many examples to when I talked about many of them having child, I'm talking about on average in several of the sub-Saharan African countries, six children, eight children. Some of those children won't be alive. Some of those children won't uh, be their choice and they will have had lives at times that make your toes curl mm -hmm. but then I have met 50 year old women getting their first microfinance opportunity who have become business um, the, so the tycoons in their local regions employing multiple people in the space of just a few months because they were brave enough to go on a journey of, of microfinance, join a peer group of other women who lifted them up, made them feel like they could do it. Remembering most of our microfinance clients are entirely illiterate. Um, I have I have been in rural countries where the matriarch of the family, who is now pretty successful, still sleeps on a mud hut floor and has a bit of wood as a pillow. And 
you appreciate your standing there with the privilege of being in her village in deepest of rural Ghana or Malawi, but she is the one who is now providing employment in her village and putting food on the table in you know, little villages that have no electricity. You know, they burn charcoal for fuel mm -hmm. and they still have to walk a long way to get water, but yet they you make soap or source spices and get away to the local market and employ people they are absolutely um the heroines in business and i will never lose my passion for funding as many of them as we can in as many countries as we can well please don't because even just based on what you've shared today and sort of your description of the situation and the change that it can drive uh, there's both a lot more work to do and it's an entirely worthwhile effort Colin, I'm so pleased that you were able to be here to share your story and talk a little bit about the work that you and the rest of Wild Hearts Group is doing. If people listening to this conversation would like to learn more, would like to connect with you, would like to explore what Wild Hearts Group is doing, what is the best way for them to get in touch? You can go to the website, www.wildheartsgroup.com dot com it's a corporate website so it covers all the different businesses that we've been discussing today anyone can find me uh colin downey on linkedin uh they can find us as a wild hearts group on twitter on facebook on linkedin as well it shouldn't be too hard uh, to track us down um so the wildheartsgroup.com and myself uh colin downey on linkedin colin thank you so much for your time today and for the work that you're doing Wonderful, Kelly. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.